Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. The constellation of headwinds that we're facing is something that's unknown to most. So we've got to recognize that we haven't hit a bump in the road. We're in uncharted territory. Today's guest outlines how she expects financial services bosses and the policymakers setting their rules will adapt to a paradigm shift in global geopolitics that will see China get increasingly assertive, US more protectionist and Russia more aggressive. She details the investment opportunities that she believes will arise from these changes to geopolitical dynamics and the likely regulatory reaction to that. And she explains how finance companies can prepare now for a mega 2024 in which the UK will likely see a change in government, the US could be navigating a return of President Trump and Mexico, India, South Africa, Russia, Ukraine and the European Parliament will also be holding elections. Tina Fordham is a geopolitical strategist who has spent two decades advising prime ministers and bosses at some of the world's largest financial institutions, as well as institutional investors and the United Nations, about the implications of global, political, security and socio-economic developments. Her career includes stints at US banking giant Citigroup and political risk consultancy Eurasia Group. In 2022, she founded Fordham Global Foresight, an independent consulting firm where she advises UK and European boards and bosses on macro geopolitical changes affecting their businesses. Hi, Tina. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a brief overview of your role. For those who might not be familiar with you, could you explain what it is that you do and who you typically advise? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I am an unusual creature in the city in that I have been a geopolitical analyst and advisor to institutional investors and boards in the C-suite for almost 25 years now. And last year started my own firm, Fordham Global Foresight, which specializes in advising predominantly UK and European boards and C-suite on these macro geopolitical changes that we've seen at the intersection of social change, as I call it. The events of the last couple of years has really moved an understanding of geopolitical risk to the center for just about any business leader and decision maker. And I can see that reflected in who's coming to me for advice. 
So whilst I would always speak to insurers and portfolio managers, the kind of usual suspects, this is moving much more into the boardroom and not just as a once a year parachute in exercise, but something that is going to be integrated into business planning, strategy development, and everything else. And I also see much more interest than ever before coming from the legal industry and from private equity. So those give a sense of the kinds of industries that just haven't had to think about the global political context and are scrambling to try to develop the tools and resources to do that more effectively. Okay, what's topping the list of clients' concerns? So at the top of the list is unquestionably the relationship between China and the West. The Russian invasion of Ukraine caught a lot of executives off guard, despite many, many years, frankly, of data points pointing to a more aggressive and hostile Russia caught a lot of government leaders and officials off guard as well. And so the question has been, how do we assess the global and especially the U.S. reaction to the Russian invasion and extrapolate that for what it might mean for relations with China, which is clearly a much more significant economic partner for the U.S. and Europe than Russia has ever been. And we're speaking a year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There has been widespread concern that Russia's actions in Ukraine, when coupled with rising tensions between USA and China, as you've referenced, would lead to a bifurcation of global markets between Western democracies and authoritarian regimes. How concerned are you by that prospect? Well, it's very concerning and it's very fluid. So what investors and leaders need to be positioned for is a real watching brief on this. We need to be prepared for a more assertive China and also a much more protectionist United States. And I think that the UK and Europe has got that message, but the desire to have a stable yet competitive relationship, which is maybe shared by both Washington and Beijing, is going to be interrupted by the fact that both sides want to maintain advantage. And we have positioning from Washington that is telling us that it is looking to constrain China. And that is new. That might have always been true, but it wasn't overt. Now it is. So are we seeing the end of globalization? It's the end of hyper-globalization, but it's not the end of globalization. It might be the end of globalization on the West's terms, or at least we're entering a period of more competition about that. And that's, to me, where the battle is going to be fought, at least on one plane. But we can't forget, too, that the more traditional spheres of defense, cyber, etc., are also going to be used. This is multi-pronged. And what's going to be problematic for a lot of the listeners on this podcast is that China, for example, is reacting with sanctions, having long criticized them as a tool undermining sovereignty, which has been the key principle that China has looked to enshrine. So we've got a lot more noise in the system and more confusion about the rules of the game when it comes to trade and engagement between major nations than any of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And that, I am not sure, is adequately appreciated. There are some big changes in trend in the macro. And if you want to try to anticipate how they're going to play out in terms of regulation, you've got to understand how these objectives have changed over the last couple of years, because it's really quite significant. 
How do you see that playing out in terms of regulation? Well, first of all, sanctions have come to be used much more often than ever. Of course, Russia now is on the receiving end of the strongest sanctions that we've seen to date. And we've seen what the impact has been. So, for example, something that was unthinkable has actually transpired since the invasion a year ago, and that is that Europe has managed to wean itself off of Russian gas supplies in a year. And it tells us how these instruments can be used in a way that it was considered unimaginable only a short time ago. So I think that we've normalized the use of big bang sanctions in a way that hasn't been seen before. But I worry that investors and decision makers have relegated the Russia case to one often idiosyncratic. In other words, well, no other country is going to be as overtly aggressive as Russia has been. And I think that's not the case. We are likely to see the use of more sanctions. And again, China is responding with its own. How do you expect the sanctions regime to play out in the coming months and years? Well, there's one big point to make about the Russian sanctions. They are not going to be reversed in our lifetimes. Russia has been marginalized and locked out of the international markets. And until and unless Putin is replaced by a leader who is willing to engage with the West, and that goes without saying roll back territory, gains, etc. Russia is not coming out from under this sanctions regime. And I still hear from executives asking me when things will go back to normal. That is really not on the horizon. The next order of consequences from a legal and regulatory perspective is going to be whether there will be war crimes tribunals. There is talk about a kind of a Nuremberg outcome. So the aftermath of that is going to be quite considerable. When it comes to the trajectory of the conflict, most wars last many years, sadly, and neither side, neither Russia nor Ukraine, are ready to give up. If anything, the likelihood of a spring offensive coming is going to extend the life of this conflict. And it's in Russia's interest not to concede and not to come to a diplomatic resolution, because for Russia, as long as Ukraine is never whole and free and never able to participate in international institutions, whether it's NATO or the EU association agreement, etc., that in itself is a victory. So keeping the conflict live benefits Russia. So a lifetime of sanctions compliance considerations, I'm sure that will concern those who've navigated various sanctions compliance headaches in the past year. And in the context of China becoming more assertive, as you've referenced, and US becoming more protectionist and Russia continuing along this vein of being a very aggressive state, what can financial services boards and bosses do in reaction to that? What should they be aware of now that you think that they are not? Well, I think, first of all, we have to appreciate that we've all grown up professionally and personally in many cases in a very pro-globalization period. Unless you grew up in South Africa during apartheid or Lebanon during the civil conflict or Northern Ireland during the Troubles, you don't have much experience on a personal level with risk, with disruption, with dislocation, even with inflation. 
And so the constellation of headwinds that we're facing is something that's unknown to most. So we've got to recognize that we haven't hit a bump in the road. We're in uncharted territory. That combination of inflation, rate rises, geopolitical risk. And if we look at our own context here in the UK, period of uncertainty, Brexit, and what's going to happen next, where I believe the public opinion is running far ahead of the political classes willingness and ability to address it. And then, of course, the United States with elections coming in 2024. A lot of moving pieces. So first of all, recognize that the global context is not what it's been before, and it's not going to return to the pre-crisis status quo. Now, that scares people when I use that language. When I say we're not going to return to the pre-crisis status quo, we are in the midst of what political scientists like me call a paradigm shift. And there is a lot to play for. It's certainly an opportunity for institutions to try to influence and make an impact where perhaps they've been quite shy in the last several years. We're in a period of flux. Governments are looking for sources of growth. They will almost certainly gravitate toward taxation and taxation on business. And there'll be an appetite to look for ways to insulate the population from the downsides of this period. And again, in the UK, we're in the most acute situation where growth has not returned to pre-crisis levels. We also are going to have elections here probably late 2024. And how much will governments be willing to do? The factor I really like to point to, though, that is probably going to be surprising for listeners of this podcast is declines in public trust in government, in business, in the media are actually a really useful proxy for how much change to expect when it comes to regulation, because when trust is low, demand for regulation goes up. And one of the interesting inversions that has happened over the last 10 or 15 years is how trust in government institutions, the media, in rich industrialized countries has plummeted significantly compared to emerging markets. That's very unusual. It used to be that in the OECD countries, regardless of the party that was in power, people broadly trusted in institutions. That's something that has shifted dramatically and I think contributed to the state of affairs that we have now. It also means that when it comes to consistency in the regulatory regime and in policy, it's going to be overturned by each incoming government. And that's problematic for people whose job it is to monitor and implement policy. Okay. And it's interesting you say that when trust is low, demand for regulation goes up because in the UK context at the moment, there is a political will to highlight the benefits of the UK's departure from the EU. And there's a political impetus to, if not deregulate, rethink regulation so that there is a greater openness to risk. As the city minister has recently said, he would like there to be a culture within the city that embraces risk more than it has done in recent years. I just wonder what tensions you see arising there, because it seems like what you're saying is the public will is at odds with the political will. And I think that's a really interesting point, because, of course, those words from the city minister would have been very welcome. And for many of our colleagues and, again, your listeners, that would have been the upside to Brexit had it transpired, this bonfire of regulations. The trouble is that unscrambling an egg has proven to be, in practical terms, very, very difficult to do. And when I say that public opinion is running significantly at odds 
We've seen in recent months that not only a majority of the British public thinks that Brexit hasn't been positive, but a majority of those who voted for it. Now, I can tell you that once you've lost public opinion, it is extremely difficult to get it back. And on the purely pragmatic front, as a political risk analyst advising clients, this government just doesn't have much runway left. Elections are due by 2025. Most observers think they will come at the end of 2024. That's going to put the timing right smack against U.S. elections in November of 2024. And we already know how that movie goes. Everything grinds to a halt when it comes to new regulation. And governments can only do one thing at a time, historically. This government, with the time that it has left, is going to try not to spook the markets again following the disastrous mini-budget and everything that we observed to our horror. When Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng came to power and to try to improve the relationship with the EU, and that's going to be very welcome. But again, if we extrapolate conflict between public opinion, which is not necessarily in favor of another referendum, mind you, or rejoining, but unhappy with the state of affairs and blaming Brexit for at least some part of what the UK is experiencing in terms of failing to rebound, not enough workers, etc. Here, Starmer has already said quite clearly that he doesn't want to touch the Brexit issue with a 10-foot pole. He's not going to campaign on it. And that means that businesses are going to be left hanging during this possible interregnum between Brexit and refining the UK's regulatory and trade approach and new elections not explicitly fought on Brexit, but with a population that is looking for answers and not happy with the way things have transpired. Okay. We're speaking not long after Ian Anderson, a senior Conservative business leader who founded the Cicero PR group, publicly announced his decision to quit the ruling Conservative Party after 40 years as a member in order to switch to Labour. He said the Conservative Party's anti-business attitude had in part influenced his decision. To what extent do you think his views are widely shared in the business community currently? Well, what I've observed is that there's a lot of interest in meeting with Labour Party leaders and understanding their position. There's a perhaps premature sense that Labour is inevitably going to win the next election, 20 points ahead in the polls. I think a change of government is fairly likely, so it's the right thing to explore these positions, but 18 months is a long time. Okay, and the Labour leader Keir Starmer has said that he won't campaign on Brexit, but you have referenced this ongoing frustration around the dynamics that Brexit has created for the city. What would you say the likelihood of a Brexit reversal would be at this stage? How would you see that playing out? From a public opinion perspective, being unhappy about Brexit is not the same thing as embracing a referendum to rejoin, which would be a headache that I think most of us, myself included, would <laughs> suffer to think about. It means, in practical terms, terms, though, years of uncertainty hanging over us, right? Between this in, out, or something in between. Keir Starmer and his campaign strategists, they've said that Keir Starmer, as prime minister, would not seek to reverse Brexit in his first term. And so that takes us to 2030 before it would be on the table politically. I suspect that if we don't see an improvement in growth and we continue to feel these other drags, even if it's not fair, by the way, if it's not fair to blame it on Brexit, in the minds of the public, things aren't working. And that's going to be enough to put pressure on leaders. 
public opinion is running ahead of government capacity to change this. Governments want to get into power and then fix things. They just don't always have the political capital and the luxury of time to do that. I'm afraid that we're going back to the period where we had to talk about all of these different types of relationships with the EU, their pros and cons. Remember the days of talking about Swiss-style agreements. I'm afraid we're going to be heading back towards something like that. I think it's inevitable that we are going to be reviewing different models of engagement with the European Union. And I'm probably not going to be taking a position on what we should or shouldn't do. But I think that the period of uncertainty with regard to Brexit and its aftermath is just longer than many of us can bear to contemplate. But in the meantime, the UK's main trading partners are going to be moving forward with other things. So you're saying it's just a huge distraction for the UK? It's a hangover. We have a pandemic hangover, like all countries, but our OECD peers are coming out of that more quickly than we are. Okay. And we have talked about the fact that clients are speaking to representatives of a possible Labour government more proactively now than perhaps in recent months. To what extent are clients concerned by the prospect of a Labour government? Well, British companies are a lot less worried about a Labour government now than they would have been five or 10 years ago. So that's evident. But actually, the question I'm asked about the most by British companies is the likelihood of a return of Trump in the United States. So I feel that British business is, has wearily got used to the ebb and flow coming out of number 10 and is navigating its global headwinds from the United States, China, and the Russian invasion that there is perhaps less confidence about. And so with that in mind, we're not far off U.S. elections. We've just had the first Republican, apart from Donald Trump, declare Nikki Haley, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And so that, I think, is going to preoccupy leaders in the UK, Europe, Asia, and elsewhere quite a bit. A possible Trump return or a Trumpist candidate who is not Trump. Okay. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you expect the US elections to play out and how financial services boards and bosses can prepare now for that? Yes. So when we're thinking about what U.S. 2024 elections look like, let's review our most recent data point, and that's the midterms. So ahead of the midterm elections, 2022, there was a great deal of concern and still is a great deal of concern about the state of U.S. democracy. So let's just pause for a moment and think about that concern about the state of U.S. democracy. That is something that we haven't had to think about before. Will the outcome of the election be respected? That's the number one consideration for democracy. (laughs) Will the loser accept the result? And after the last election, after the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill, there was more doubt around that question than there has been for some time, the U.S. not being a very old country, as we know. So I think it's really important that we don't look at U.S. elections with the same business as usual. What are Republicans campaigning on? What are Democrats campaigning on? Because the existential question about whether the result of a U.S. election will be respected is really in question. So when we look at the midterms, there was a lot of good news for those of us who are mainly focused on respect for democratic institutions in that the outcome was respected. Also, what political scientists like me would call low quality candidates, broadly speaking, 
didn't win at the polls. So we didn't get a purely partisan outcome. It was good news broadly for institutions and democracy. And so from a political risk perspective, that's good news for the United States and for business. Fast forward into 2024, is the US going to avoid a recession? We still have mixed data coming in there. Fed rate hikes still very much front and center. There is a very poor track record of predicting victors in elections this many years out. But I think it really bears watching the extent of public support for democracy and candidate quality. If we look at the Republican Party, so-called establishment, the big donors, etc., it is starting to seem evident that they want to get rid of Donald Trump. The trouble is that MAGA Republicans, as they're known, still have about 25% base of support. So the primary process in the United States for the Republican Party is going to be pretty hot, pretty contested. And there is a history of those primary races chewing up and spitting out candidates. The number of people who declare to run against Trump is also important. He actually does well in matchups against numerous candidates. And that's going to depend on how many are willing to take him on, because he also is pretty tough on anybody who opposes him, who dares to oppose him with his mean nicknames and his still quite strong support machine. Okay, so more uncertainty down the track there. Yes, Joe Biden will be, I believe, the oldest candidate to run for president. Oh, he's got a pretty decent track record to run on. That's not insignificant. Trump seems determined, and yet there are many countervailing forces going against him. There is a lot to play for. And when we look at the geopolitical landscape, not only China, but what I describe as rising middle powers, that's the Saudi Arabia, Turkey, India, Brazil, etc. Everyone is going to be watching US elections and calibrating. And there will be a great deal of tea leaf reading going on and probably a holding pattern, right? Waiting for those signals to emerge. When we look at 2024, we have a mega year for elections. And this is another point that I highlight to clients because it's the US, probably the UK, Mexico, India, South Africa, Russia, Ukraine, and the European Parliament. So you won't be getting much sleep in 2024. We can predict that at least. I don't need much sleep. That's lucky. (laughs) Okay. We've talked about the very many changes coming down the track in terms of geopolitical relationships. Do you think financial services boards and bosses are taking such paradigm shifts as you've referenced it seriously enough? The concept that I've coined is that we all need to raise our PQ, our political quotient. It's a luxury to have not had to think about the global political and economic context. You can only afford to do that if you live in a wealthy, stable country. And the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on gas prices here in the UK, where we're not even that dependent upon Russian gas supplies, is just an example of how that period is over. So I work with companies to develop their PQ, and the idea has really resonated. You can't just parachute in an expert like me who says scary things and then go back to business as usual. It needs to be integrated into processes, into strategy, into business development. And that's a shift that I'm seeing starting to emerge. It can also be a source of alpha, frankly, for companies, which is rather than say that geopolitics is some force of nature slash natural disaster that can occur 
we can actually be systematic about thinking about these shifts, just like we've talked about this huge constellation of elections coming in 2024. Putting things together in aggregate rather than looking at them as one-off idiosyncratic and expecting a return to the mean are just part of the ways that we can improve the way we're prepared for a period of dislocation where countries and companies are going to take advantage of volatility to seek advantage. That's what they should do. Okay. And in that context, what regions do you think will benefit from the shifts in market dynamic that we've been discussing? Well, you can already see the experimentation and the pushback that is starting to ensue. So, for example, I think that India has positioned itself fairly well in the aftermath of the Russian invasion in that it's been critical of Russia at the UN Security Council and in some strategic global fora. But it's also been quite happy to buy Russian gas supplies on the cheap and benefit from doing so. It hasn't, in other words, tainted itself, frankly, with being a supporter of Russia, and yet it's been able to benefit. South Africa, by contrast, is an example where South Africa can benefit from the anti-Russia sanctions regime in some ways, and it's attempting to be opportunistic by hosting Russian military exercises You can see, at the same time, U.S. leaders remembering about Africa for the first time in a long time. For African countries, there's an opportunity to bid up, frankly, what kind of engagement and support and the terms of that engagement from the West right now. I see a lot of Middle Eastern investors looking at the UK and Europe and seeing distressed assets for a good price (laughs) and not put off by what we've talked about five or 10 years of political uncertainty. So whereas we may be a bit gloomy here in the UK, I see a lot of energy and opportunism coming from the Middle East, from Asia, not just from China, the other huge markets like Indonesia, for example, Brazil, I visited recently talking to a big conglomerate there ready to deploy cash. So There's a lot to play for in an environment of volatility, and I definitely don't advise a wait-and-see approach because there's always opportunity in change and to influence change. And some of those regions that you've just referenced have questionable human rights records. So what advice would you have for financial services companies, boards and leaders looking to partner with investors from regions like the Middle East, for example, while regulators and the general public are becoming ever more focused on companies' ESG, environmental, social and governance credentials? Are there any common mistakes to avoid there? If you follow the money, the interest in the Gulf is huge. It'll take time, but regulators are going to eventually turn their attention to these new centres of activity. But also in the last year or so in the United States, there has been a big counter reaction to the ESG movement. Lots of criticism of particularly the E part. We should expect more of that in the run up to 2024. It plays well for Republicans in the elections. One of the specific points I've highlighted is that if you want to work in the U.S. market, you don't just need to think about red states and blue states. You need to think about red asset managers and blue asset managers and insurers and banks, etc., because that's where the political polarization is driving the debate. But I'm at pains to emphasize that this is mostly a U.S. problem. And so one of the tensions that's coming out in boardrooms 
is between U.S. executives being concerned that the ESG agenda is going to cost them locking horns with their colleagues in the U.K. and EU for whom things are moving forward at pace. That it's going to lead to tensions in boardrooms where your U.S. headquarters is going to be pressuring U.K. and European executives about the cost to the company of pursuing an ESG agenda because U.S. companies that attempt to use an ESG screen are actually being penalized and excluded from U.S. mandates. We don't have the same kinds of pushback here. Okay, so that could be quite a challenging dynamic for UK company boards to navigate. And you have forged a career, as you've said, as an independent geopolitical strategist in the financial services sector. In 2003, you became the first chief political analyst at a Wall Street bank, and you remained one of the only execs in that role at a Wall Street bank until your departure from Citigroup in 2020. What career advice do you have for those looking to follow in your footsteps? Well, it's tricky because one of the byproducts of having been the first and the only suggests that there may not be a huge opportunity for a lot more. So I don't necessarily suggest that people try to follow in my footsteps in terms of being a geopolitical strategist, but rather to look for opportunities. What isn't being covered? What is something that you think is important that isn't being talked about? Because I pitched my role to City. They didn't have a job vacancy. I said to chief risk officer at the time, you've got 133 economists. You don't have anybody who just focuses on the politics. And I think a lot of what has made my work possible was this big trend towards specialization. And that's a byproduct of not thinking about the macro, not connecting the dots. It's a good time for me, and I think for anybody who can provide an overarching context for the environment that we're living in. When you have most people trained as specialists and no one can look at the whole solar system, there is a need. So that's what entrepreneurs do. They look for a niche and they look for opportunity. So don't feel shy about putting your hand up if you see that there's a gap in your company's resourcing for a particular role that may or may not exist already. In this environment, being entrepreneurial, being a risk taker and offering solutions is very welcome because we don't have a map. We have never been here before. Okay. And generally and lastly, what's one upcoming or current challenge you think not enough people are paying attention to? The advent of chat GPT and artificial intelligence is a great example of a development that has both positives and negatives. Companies will use it. It'll make many tasks easier. ChatGPT has the potential to impact white-collar, university-educated workers in significant numbers. And that is not something that we've experienced, right? So electric vehicles, putting lorry drivers out of work, the whole deindustrialization that has taken place over the last several decades, these were disruptive. But when I say it's more disruptive when it impacts the middle class, that's based on what we know in political science about social conflict and revolutions. It's not the poor who start revolutions, it's disgruntled middle classes. And so in as much as our fearless leaders tend not to be the most tech savvy around of us, I don't know that they're ready for what's coming in terms of the disruptive consequences of these white collar workers losing their jobs. Automation of the labor force has been something that we've known about 
much has been written about it. It's almost a caricature. The robots are coming. But trust me, when it starts to put lawyers out of work, the government will hear about it. So we're facing not only a paradigm shift geopolitically, but also to the way in which the financial services sector is resourced. Yes, absolutely. And most people I know are in the process of just trying to experiment with the technology, right? It's quite new. It'll possibly be followed by other efforts. It will take years before the impact starts to be felt. But at a time when governments are moving toward a more industrial type of policy, more protectionist measures, and still very focused on the needs of aging populations, artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies can be hugely beneficial. But we need to devote some resources, energy to thinking about that. And governments have their hands full. This is probably an area where industry can help. Lots of that's happening, of course, with more apprenticeships, etc. But I'm flagging chat GPT as a very consequential development. Okay. Well, this has been a very thought-provoking conversation, Tina. Thank you very much for your time today. And perhaps it'd be good to get you back in 2025 once all the various political uncertainties that we've discussed have been clarified to discuss then what the next steps might be. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.